and Phut and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah, and Sabta and Ramah and Sabteca, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba and Dedan, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. He sounds like a good guy so far, don't he? He sounds like he's mighty. He sounds like he's wonderful. We're going to get into that. He is not. He's the opposite of that. Uh, he goes on in verse number 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Uh, and one of the la- uh, one, uh, excuse me, out of that land went forth Asher and built at Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kala and Resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludim and Ananim and Lehabim and Naphtahim and Pathrusim and Kalsuhim, out of whom came uh, Phil, Philistim and Caphthorim and Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim. Uh, Zeboim. Uh, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, and their countries, and in their nations. How many of y'all think I can say all those names again five times fast and get them right? Yeah, me either. Uh, and so what we're going to do tonight as we jump in here into the sons of Ham, we're going to be seeing the continued lineages here, but specifically with the sons of Ham, uh, these guys are going to be uh, the ones who uh, a great deal of wickedness is going to uh, come through, and, and as we'll see as we work our way through the passage. But Sorensen writes about the sons of Ham, and want to remind you as well, I don't have it with me up here, but if you still have that map, I think we've got extra copies in the back, it will help to show you where they're going. But Sorensen writes about this here. Uh, he says, The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Phut and Canaan. Those each were the progenitors of peoples who lived in the south of the cradle of civilization and largely of the people who settled in the African continent. Cush is largely the same as Ethiopia, uh, Western Africa, though the original Ethiopians populated the Arabian Peninsula before migrating to Northwest Africa. Uh, Mizraim is overwhelmingly otherwise translated as Egypt. We see that later on in the book of Genesis uh, and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where it's in reference and the same word being that of Egypt. Mizraim uh, is Egypt. Uh, They're going to play an awful important part in the life of Israel, aren't they? Uh, we think about this. Abraham's going to go down to, uh, to uh, Egypt. Uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, Israel will be there and then be delivered out of Egypt. And so we find that they're going to play a huge role in their life and development. He goes on and he says, Foot people of other portions of North Africa as it thought otherwise to be Libya. Uh, Canaan, the fourth son of Ham, remained in the region of Palestine, populating the area which later would be, be known as the Promised Land or Biblical Israel. This is where we get the Canaanites from, the Canaan land. And so what we're going to see is that God is preparing, ultimately, all of these people in all these places to do what? To call out a people that were not a people through Father Abraham, uh, who would have many sons, a covenant would be given to him. And what we find is that it's going to be through him that the promised seed, the lineage, uh, ultimately coming to the Messiah, through the Messiah, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come. And so all of these folks, though, as wicked and as sinful and as wide variety as they are, each one is going to play their part in the uh, development of God's people and as well in the great redemptive story of what the Lord is doing. And uh, we, so we find that Canaan's going to be coming out of Ham, all this, this cursed lineage. Now remember the relationship between Ham and Canaan during the sin 
uh, and cursing after the flood. Genesis uh, chapter 9, we're going to see it down 18 through 29, talks about this. The sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. We're going to skip down to verse 22, and once more it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Uh, and Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. So we find that Shem is going to be the one that is going to be the blessed seed that the Messiah will come through. He will also be the seed that blesses others, where Japheth will be enlarged through him and will be blessed and dwell underneath his tents. And then we find that ultimately there is Ham and his lineage of, of Canaan, specifically his youngest boy, that their lineage, the Canaanites, are going to be servant of servants. They are going to be a wicked people, a perverse people, and a people that will be at odds against uh, the Lord and God's plan through Israel. Now remember this, and what we find is that Canaan's lineage will be cursed to be the servant of servants to the lineage of Japheth and Sham both. We find that Ham's lineage will be an overwhelmingly wicked people who will be an antagonist against Israel, God's chosen people, and will play a part in the persecution of the lineage of faith throughout the rest of human history. Uh, we also find, as MacDonald writes, talking about the, uh, the people of Ham, he calls the, the Hamanic peoples, Ethiopians, Egyptians, Canaanites, Philistines, Babylonians, possibly the African and Oriental people as well. There is some debate and some uh, unknown about that. Nevertheless, uh, you notice about this, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, and the Babylonians specifically, all of them, all four of those folks, are going to play a very important role with the people of Israel. All four of those people groups are going to be at odds with God's people. Uh, at times they're going to come against them, are going to kill them. The Egyptians are going to enslave them. The Canaanites are going to be at odds and fight against them. The Philistines are always going to be coming up and roaring against them, fighting against them, even up to David's time. Uh, then we find even with the Babylonians, ultimately going to be into captivity in the Babylonian Empire, where we get into like the book of Daniel and that sort of thing during that time of the people of Israel's uh, life where they were dispersed, scattered, uh, and many of them taken into captivity uh, into uh, the, the land of Babel or the land of Shinar as we see here in the same passage. Now as we work through here, what we have to understand as we set this up here, before we get into this idea of Nimrod and, and who he is and what this brings about and what he brings about ultimately through his uh, wickedness and sin and perversion and idolatry, is that we want to see is that God is able to use evil men and evil empires, evil nations, evil kings, evil people for the good of his people. Now, this is mind-boggling to you and to me, right? You ever thought about this? World War II was an absolute catastrophe, wasn't it? I mean, from start to finish, right? All the millions of lives that were killed before World War II even started, then after it started, during it started, right? But as well, we notice this, what happens in the middle of all this, specifically towards the end of Germany's uh, time uh, of reigning and their, their time of terror, we find what it, we call the Holocaust. Millions of Jews killed, slaughtered, simply for being Jews. Uh, it was Hitler's goal, his idea to exterminate them completely from off the face of the planet. But what instead happened after that? They returned back to their land. Prophecy being fulfilled, biblical prophecy being fulfilled. So we see that even God is able to use what evil men and evil empires and evil people use, he's able to use for good. So this reminds us of what Joseph dealt with in his life later on in Genesis. We'll get to uh, probably the next three to five years, <laughs> but we'll get to him. Uh, but what we find is that God is able to take what man means for evil and to use it 
for good. Later on in the Babylonian Empire, he's even going to call king, wicked king Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Now, what a thought that is, right? The God of the universe that goes, as wicked as he is, he's my servant. He's serving his purposes. Now, we think that evil men are only serving the purpose of the devil. We find that ultimately, even they all fall under the umbrella of the sovereign Lord who knows exactly what he's doing, ultimately to bring about his plan of redemption of his people. And so with this, this gives us comfort. This gives us peace to know that no matter what comes in this life, no matter how evil and wicked the days get, God still remains in control. God still remains faithful to his purpose and to his providence to deal uh, in the life of all of humanity to bring about redemption and reconciliation, especially and specifically through uh, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 8 to 14, we're going to look at Nimrod as we get into this because he's the first one that's truly of great notation that we need to look at. Now, we'll back up here. Uh, the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sebteca, uh, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush, now Cush is the second son, uh, no, excuse me, uh, Cush is the first son of Ham. And he says that Cush begat Nimrod. And he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Now, thus far, no one else has been described as being a mighty one in the earth except for Nimrod. We've had others who were described in different ways back in Genesis chapter 4, mostly relating to their sorts of trade, whether they were uh, skilled with the harp, some with iron and brass, things like that. But here we find that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it says, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So notice this. We learn an awful lot about who this man is. Now, I want everybody to go ahead and do this for a moment. I want you to, everybody to look around, look to your neighbor, and I want you to say, don't be a Nimrod. Go ahead. Don't be a Nimrod. If you're watching tonight, don't be a Nimrod. All right, there we go. Now, why do we say that? Anyone ever got called a Nimrod before? Uh, none of y'all? Y'all must not have had my mama for your mama then. Uh, <laughs> right? I was a Nimrod sometimes. Now, what does Nimrod mean? That's what we're going to get into. Nimrod is one of rebellion. He is one who rebels. That is his nature. It is his character. Guzik writes, One son of Cush, worthy of note, is Nimrod. He was a mighty one on the earth, but not in a good way. He ruled over Babel. He was the founder of Babel, as it describes his kingdom, first being in Babel, which was the first organized rebellion of humans against God. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 11. And he says the name Nimrod itself means let us rebel. Now, Nimrod here is not just going to be one guy off on his own who's rebelling against God. We've got to remember that the moment that they get off the boat, what happens? What gets off the boat with them besides the animals and besides the eight people? Sin, that's right, that's right. Look at y'all. Ah, I tell you what, that makes me excited. That, y'all are learning. Y'all are learning. That's great. That, 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 praise the Lord. That's awesome. That, that's good. Sin gets off the boat. Now, sin gets off with those people. The, this world is still sin-cursed yet. It has the covenant that God says, I'll never destroy it by flood again, and here's my bow in the cloud to show you that as proof of who I am. Now, the world changed after that, but sin remained the same. The curse was still there. The curse had not been lifted. It won't be lifted until we see another rainbow, and it's going to be the city of God, a new heavenly Jerusalem, where uh, we will be glad that we will see the Lord, that the, the, the Lamb should be the light thereof, that there will be no more curse. It will be lifted forever. But until that day, there is still yet this curse. There is still sin, and it does not take long for sin to show itself. We saw that in chapter 9. It led to the... Uh, the uh, destruction of a family it led to the, the cursing of generations uh, of a whole people group that would ultimately go wayward and wicked on their own it was less about a uh god saying 
hey, I'm going to make the Canaanite people now, and I'm going to make them all wicked. God doesn't make anyone wicked. They're born wicked. Matter of fact, what the idea is is that they would continue in the rebellion. It was a prophecy less about uh, God saying, I'm going to turn them wicked. No, God does not turn them wicked. He turns them loose to their wickedness. He allows them to go on their way, and that's what they did. That's what we do as a human race, as, as human beings, with a sinful nature, a sin-cursed body, a sin-cursed mind, a sin-cursed heart, a sin-cursed world. Now, with all this, we come with Nimrod, the idea of rebel. Now, he is described here in the, the way that we find him as a mighty hunter before the Lord and the beginning of his kingdom. So clearly, he is a warrior. He is valiant in his military might and effort and his hunting endeavors. Clearly, what is implied is that he's got to be physically strong. He's got to have some smarts and some wits about him in order to start and establish a kingdom. Remember back in Genesis chapter 9 when God gave the covenant, what do we find as well? That's the establishment of human government or a new dispensation. It has not ended and it will not end. What we find is that in this, he sets up his own kingdom. We have to remember that this idea of kingdom, that there are truly only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Or put it another way, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, right? Now, what we find is that the, that the devil himself in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, is called the, the prince of the power of the air, right? Uh, he, he rules over in this dark world and in this darkness. But what does he use? Well, he uses people like God uses people. Notice that God uses people to, to do his operation and to continue on his program. We find this with Noah. We're going to find this with, with Abram, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down the line. David, all the way down to Christ, right? Now, what we see with all this is that the devil uses the same. Whatever God is at work and doing, you can rest assured that the devil will do the exact same, but the exact opposite of it, right? So what the Lord uses for good, the devil will use the same idea and the same tactics, right? He's running the same plays, right? He's running them backwards, though. Where the Lord is running this way, the devil's running that way. We find that he's constantly at odds, Constantly going against. And so what you find, where you find a Christ, you find the Antichrist. Where you find the Spirit of Christ, you find the Spirit of Antichrist. Where you find the Kingdom of Light, you find then the Kingdom of Darkness. Where you, you find life, the other side you find death. Right. So we find all of these things that, that are at odds, at enmity, one with the other. Now we must be careful here in understanding this. God and the devil are not like the Tom and Jerry cartoons where God's over here and the devil's over here and they're battling out to see who's going to win. We know who's already won. Right? The devil never had a chance. We have to remember that he was a created being who fell from his position uh, where he was himself a covering cherub of the glory of God. And because of his pride, because of his willfulness to sin, because of, and let's think about this, what Nimrod is doing is the same thing that the devil did. What do you mean? I'll explain. What does it say about Nimrod? He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He's mighty. He's valiant. He's skillful. He's smart. He's witty. All these things, right? He's got everything going for him. But then it says in the beginning of his kingdom, what does he want to do? He wants to build his own kingdom. He wants to take all of his intelligence, all of his gifts, all of his talents, everything that he's got, and now he wants to be the head honcho. He wants to be the one in charge. And so ultimately you find that he's going the way of the devil. He's going the way of Cain. He's going the way of Everyone that is under the sin curse that in our flesh, what we seek to do is we do not seek to build the kingdom of God, but rather we seek to build the kingdom of self. Now to, help, now to build the kingdom of self is to continue on living and building the kingdom of darkness because it is at odds with the Spirit of God. It is at odds with the Lord Himself in the kingdom of light. 
Now, Scroggy talks about this. Uh, what we find here, uh, this mighty hunter, warrior, it reminds us as well. We'll get it to Scroggy in just a moment. Uh, turn back for just a moment to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we're going to see a little bit about what we can picture Nimrod being like here. In Genesis chapter 6, verse number 4 specifically, there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that were the sons of God come into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Now, if you remember back, and it's been a little while, but when we covered that verse specifically, it dealt with the idea that there were those who were rising up and were taking charge. They were mighty, they were strong, they were smart, and many of them were even being worshipped as demigods. Have you ever noticed that with every Greco-Roman uh, literature, movies, things that we find about that. Hey, let's, let's break it down. Let's get real specific. Anyone ever heard of Hercules before? All right. What do we know about Hercules? Well, he's part God, part man, right? He's got Zeus as his daddy, right? And Zeus came down, had relations with a woman, and then out came Hercules. Didn't find out that he was a god until he got older. Now he finds out he's strong. He's got this horse Pegasus. He can do all kinds of stuff. But what do we find? There's this idea that he was a hero that everyone viewed him as a god and then began to worship him, count on him, depend upon him. He had the power that no one else had, but that everyone else wanted. All right, now let's break this down further. Anybody ever heard of Superman before? What's the difference? Right, there's not. Now, I'll watch a cartoon just like anybody else, right? I'm not here tonight to tell you to turn off your TVs, all right, and put on tinfoil caps or anything like that, all right? But I am telling you this, notice that throughout our society, no matter whether you go back 2,000 years to Greco-Roman culture or you come to today's society, we find a desire to be like God. We find a desire to be more than human, to be more than mortal, but to do so on our own terms. We worship that mentality. We worship that idea of rising above the challenges and the difficulties of this world to ultimately conquer the world. It is a very pagan understanding of the world around us. It is a very pagan and idolatrous view of oneself, of lifting up oneself to build one's own kingdom. It is the uh, idea here from Genesis 6-4 to Nimrod here to build up one's own kingdom, to be this mighty hunter, to be this mighty warrior. This idea that someone wants to be in charge and to be worshipped for it. We've got to understand here that before the flood, men were being worshipped. They were being worshipped as gods, right? These demigods is what they were viewed like. Now, if you go back and you read much of uh, ancient history, many of these people that the Bible even speaks of that died, many of them had legends then told after their death that they were gods among men and that their spirit lives on and continues. That is the spirit of Antichrist. That is much of what Nimrod is going to base off all of his kingdom about, a mystery religion that is going to be ultimately satanic in nature, a worship of oneself, a lifting up of oneself. Do you all know what Satanism is? Satanism is not the worship of Satan. That's a common misconception. What is Satanism? You read any satanic book, right? And I'm not recommending that you do so, right? But you read any satanic literature, you listen to any, any group of Satanism that, that promotes anything, and you know what they're going to say? They all base it around a worship of oneself. It is the rule of this, every, much like judges, where every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Right? 
That's Satanism. To do that which is right in your own eyes. To do what you want to do without thought of what God has already decided. That's Satanism. This is why we have to understand that the, this idea of idolatry and Satanism, the occult, it is much broader and wider than what we can realize. And we find perhaps the Mount Rushmore of men that promotes it here in the man Nimrod. Scroggy writes, most worthy of notice is the fact that a descendant of Cush was Nimrod the rebel, the father of imperialism, the founder of the first world empire, Babylon, which reached its highest imperial glory under Nebuchadnezzar, the conqueror of Assyria and the builder of Nineveh. That was the point of where they had reached the biggest span of land that they had. That's the way that we talk about empires, how big they got, sort of their peak. That was when they were spread out the most before they ultimately, their, their balloon was busted and they, right, and came back down, right? Every empire, by the way, has ended, uh, or it's going to end. You know, that's what we have to understand. Uh, uh, Daniel prophesied this uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, even talking about this. He goes, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're, you're the head of gold, right? Things are good. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, all right, this is great. And he describes all these other kingdoms going on and down, and ultimately that they are crushed, defeated, destroyed by who? By another kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the Lord himself. As we move on here, we find that there are four cities of Babylon that are mentioned with Babel being the capital in the land known as Shinar. Now we see Shinar being this region, if you will, with Babel being the capital of Babylon. So later on in the Old Testament, you're going to find the land of Shinar mentioned. You're going to find the city of Babel mentioned as the capital city. And you're also going to find the, the empire itself called Babylon, all right? Uh, we'll find that all throughout the Bible, it's going to play a very key role. But in verses 8 through 10, we, we see these different cities. Uh, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Then it says, out of that land, that, that land, out of that land, went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kala. Now, there's one of two renderings or readings here that we could do. Either one, Asher is a totally different person, and he goes and he builds Nineveh on his own. Or what we see is that as you dig deeper into, uh, into this language, it's going to appear that these are going to be, uh, this is going to be coming out whether uh, uh, Nimrod himself is going to be continuing to build and expand his kingdom. Now, nevertheless, verses 11 and 12 show us uh, four more cities. Now, these four cities are going to be of the Assyrian Empire, which are mentioned with Nineveh being the capital. You notice that here. The unrest in between Nineveh and Caled, the same as a great city. What same city? The city of Nineveh. Y'all ever heard of Nineveh before? Right? Who, who had to go down to Nineveh? Old Jonah, right? Uh, Jonah, uh, Jonah let, uh, went, had to eventually wound up in Nineveh. And what we find, Nineveh has a great revival. But you know what else we find later on in history? About 70 years later, they were crushed and destroyed. Found their sin, yet still yet found them out. That ultimately that they had a a flash, a spark of revival, but it did not last for the generations as it once should have. Now, here's what we see. The Babylonians and the Assyrians are going to be seen here in these verses. Now, why is that important? Here, both the Babylonians and the Assyrians would be people who would bring Israel into captivity, where God would prove himself to be his people, uh, to, to his people, and prune them in the fire of persecution to strip them of their idolatry, by being in captivity to the greatest perpetrators of idolatry that the world has known. Now you want to talk about God's providence. That God puts these folks right here and shows us the beginnings of these kingdoms. Why? Because God is already preparing for the pruning of His people. God is already at work to prepare a people 
to bring his people who will rebel against him. They will go even the name of Nimrod, Nimrod, if you will. They will rebel against their Lord, their God. They will reject his word. And God will take these folks that he's already preparing and raising up. And what will he do? He will build up one kingdom. They will bring uh, his people under captivity. There will be revival. There will be a return back to the homeland. There will be rebuilding. There will be revival spiritually taking place. And then what will happen? Things will be going good until they're not going good and they slip back into idolatry and immorality once more. We find that Israel, for most of its majority of time in the land of Israel, was a very pagan people, right? They, they worshipped many other gods except the, the Lord that they were supposed to. And so we find that the times of revival were when they'd have a good king and they'd come in and what would they do? They would tear down the high places, they would tear, tear down all the hedges, all the, the pillars, the structures, and the things that were worshipped to the pagan gods. Now with this, we find that God is already at work in preparing the folks who he's going to use. Now, notice this, though. Not only is he going to use the Babylonians and the Assyrians and their kingdoms and their empires to prune his people, but what is he going to do? He's going to use those empires to prove himself once more to his people because it is God's hand that is going to crush those empires and draw his people out. Notice, as we've talked about, much like with the flood, God has the one hand inviting all under the ark, with the other hand staying his judgment. We find that with both hands, God is going to crush the enemy of his people while also redeeming and rescuing his people. Now notice, though, it is God's hand that raises up the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But it's also God who redeems his people from those individuals, from those pagan groups. Because ultimately, God himself will show himself true and faithful to his covenant, to his covenant people, the people of his covenant, the sons of his covenant who have inherited the promises of it uh, for, throughout eternity. And we find as well that he will prove all of his character to show who he is. He reveals himself in such a way as he redeems and reconciles his people. Now, father is the Nimrod. If he, uh, uh, fa uh, is father uh, uh, Nimrod is sort of the father of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, if you will, of this sort of mentality, this sort of pagan culture and idolatry and immorality that will be so rampant. We find that God will use this rebellious people to rescue his own people. Uh, he will use idolaters to strip his people of idolatry. Now, would it last forever? Unfortunately not. Israel will continue to go wayward time and time again, but it sounds an awful lot like you and I today, where we slip into idolatry, God rescues us from idolatry, but even we find that God is so wonderful and majestic in how he does these things. We find time and time again that much of what he does in redeeming his people from idolatry is showing them their blatant sin by going, look, this is your sin. Look at it. Do you see it? It's sort of, you ever potty trained a dog? I know it sounds, what do you do when that dog goes to the bathroom on the floor? Uh, that's right. See, I didn't have to say it now. Because if I would have said it, y'all thought, oh, Pastor Joe, of course that's what you do, right? You show them this is your sin. Look at it. The Lord would do such to redeem them from it, to show them the stench of their sinfulness so that they would smell the sweetness of his grace as he redeems them. Now, as we continue on, we find this idea of Nimrod being this mighty hunter, building up his kingdom. We find him being a picture of, in fact, the Antichrist himself. Now, that will come into play once we get into some more of the details. i got ten minutes, all right? Don't you worry. Nimrod picks up with the violent rebellion of his faithless and rebellious fathers before him in the pre-flood world. As we go back to Romans 6-4, we see the violence is everywhere. Uh, Genesis 6, it says, uh, let me find it here. Yeah, okay. Uh, we'll just pick up verse 5. Genesis 6-5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was 
was only evil continually and repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast of the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them, but no found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, these are the generations. And again in verse 11 says, the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So we find the two major things that caused the flood of sin was the idolatry, which led to immorality, but the immorality specifically two major things that crushes a people, that will destroy a people. Uh, it is this, sexual perversion and violence. Now, where you find sexual perversion, you will normally find violence. Where you find violence, you will normally find sexual perversion. The two go hand in hand, and they are absolutely wicked down to the very core. Uh, it is a very Nimrodian sort of uh, process of living. It is a very Babylonian way of living. It is a very pagan way of living. It is a very satanic way of living. God takes it incredibly serious. So he, if you will, uh, you could almost imagine Nimrod uh, looking back and thinking about those mighty men of old going, I want to be like that, but greater. I want to be bigger. I want to be badder. I want to have more rule, more power, more authority. That's his goal. Now, surface level reading of this uh, in the English would almost make Nimrod out to be a great man before God, accomplishing wonderful things, right? We notice in the English, it simply says that uh, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Well, that makes it sound like this. If we read it just in the English and we don't deal with the language of the Hebrew, then what we see is Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Here, here's Nimrod out right here, right deer down. This is great. God's going, a nice shot, good buck, right? Here we go. Well, good job, right? That's not what's happening. The idea is before his face and even against him. What we find is that uh, his character is going to reveal himself uh, to be rebellious by building up of the earthly kingdoms in opposition to the will and people of God, both the Babylonian people and the, uh, the Assyrian people, and ultimately the kingdom of Babel itself, because we're going to find that it's going to pay a big part later on in the Scriptures. Now with this, Boyce writes, this is not talking about Nimrod's ability to hunt wild game. He was not a hunter of animals. He was a hunter of men, a warrior. It was through his ability to fight and kill and rule ruthlessly that his kingdom of the Euphrates Valley city-states was consolidated into ultimately what would be Babel or Babylon. So what we find is that he is the smartest, the strongest man on the block. Everybody wants to be his friend. Everybody wants to follow him. Everybody wants to fight. This is the guy that everyone goes, yep, he's the captain of the team. We're following him. He's charismatic. He's able to motivate people. He's able to crush those in his way to power. Who does it sound like? Well, it sounds like the Antichrist, doesn't it? Why? Because that's exactly the picture and the type that he serves to be. He shows us what the Antichrist's ministry and life is going to look like. He's going to be a man that rises up, that is going to be mighty, smart, cunning. He's going to be uh, brilliant with his schemes. He's going to be able to bring a people together because ultimately what we're going to find is that in chapter 11 is that this is a bringing together of the, the people of all the world ultimately under the umbrella of Babel and all under the authority of Nimrod himself. Now this is important to see because what we find is that these things are going to come to pass and we're watching the days get closer and closer and we're watching everything set up for such. Now as we've said in studying of 1 Thessalonians during Sunday school, and if you don't come to Sunday school, that's a plug-in for Sunday school, come to Sunday school. But for 1 Thessalonians, what we're talking about is the coming of Christ. Here's what we see. We find this, that Christ is coming and that we are looking for Christ, not the Antichrist. Yet we find here a picture and a type to show us 
what that man of perdition is going to be like when that day comes. Now, you might be asking yourself right now, and you could get into much debate about, well, are we going to know who he is? Well, I think he's him. I think he's so-and-so. I believe that, the, that all throughout the ages, there have been men who have been prepared to be raised up to be such, but they have not fit the, they have not fit the bill. The timing has not been yet. That day will come. And nevertheless, I'm not planning on being here. So everyone right now focuses on, preacher, what about the mark of the beast? Am I going to have to get something in my forehead just to walk in a food line and, and get some squishy tomatoes or something? I don't believe so. Nevertheless, what we find is that we are looking and fixated on the motivating factor of that Christ is coming. Why? Because ultimately, that our patriarchal fathers here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, what, what are they looking forward to? They're looking forward to the same thing we're looking forward to. They're looking forward to the coming of Christ. We're looking forward to the return of Christ. He's already come once. We're able to look back and forward and to see who Christ is and what he's done. Now, as the deeper understanding of the language and the rendering of it appears to point Nimrod uh, invades the land of Asher in the continuation there in verse 11. It seems that he is sort of doing what the, the Nazis did in the, er, in the late 30s, is that they go, late 30s, early 40s, and they go in this huge surge of taking over everything and its power. Who is there that can stop Nimrod? Well, none. None on earth, at least. Only the Lord Himself. And the Lord is going to stop him in just a chapter. What we find, though, ultimately, is that the Lord is going to stop him and all of his descendants, all of his rebellious people, ultimately. Uh, at the book uh, in the end of Revelation chapter 19 and uh, ultimately into uh, chapter 21, 22, where there is no more curse and all of those who have rebelled against the Lord will be cast away into a lake of fire, uh, which will be the second death. Now with this, we find Nimrod, we find how he, uh, Kidner writes about him, that Nimrod looks out of antiquity as the first of the great men that are in the earth remembered for two things the world admires, personal prowess and political power. The Bible does not underrate them. There is warmth in the reiterated before the Lord, marking God's estimate of his skill. It is more uh, than a mere formula. Now, at the same time, there is a tragic irony, that is, irony not yet apparent in the story. In the note of his further exploits, the beginnings of his kingdom was Babel. The next chapter in the further progress of Babel, or Babylon, to the catastrophe of Revelation 18, add their comment in the tale of the early success. So here's what we find. We've talked about this in our study on Sunday nights going through the Psalms. You look at a lot of the early Psalms, and what you find is this. God lets the wicked go for a season. They win battles. They win victories. They appear that they've won the war. They build kingdoms. They, they build their armies. They build their wealth. They build their happiness. They build all their prosperity. And then God goes, and they're done. So what we find is that God's able to let Nimrod go for a while. God's able to let Babel go for a while. Matter of fact, God's able to let Babel go all the way till the end of Revelation and then ultimately through Christ's coming where uh, the great whore of Babylon is destroyed. That spiritual, that spiritual Babylon is crushed forever. Now Nimrod is not merely establishing an earthly kingdom here of rebellion, but a spiritual kingdom of unbelieving rebels against God. Now here's what I want to deal with, and we'll end with this. I got a few few scriptures I'm going to give to us tonight. And then the, that alarm's going to go off in about two, three minutes. <laughs> Psalm two for just a moment. Psalm two for just a moment. I'll be, I'll beat you there, so I'll read it first. If you get there first and you can read it. <laughs> Psalm two says this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's what Nimrod was doing. Let us break their bands asunder. Who's there? Who are they? 
Well, it's the Lord, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It says, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Why? Because the lost world feels that they are in bondage from God. Here's the thing, that they're not in bondage from God, they're in bondage from the devil. That God is the one who sets them free from that bondage and to make them a son and a daughter of, the, of himself. Now furthermore, he goes on, he says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That's capital S-O-N. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Notice this, that even in Psalm 2 talks about how you and I Gentiles will be involved in the God's redemptive plan and invited into salvation. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them with pieces and like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, capital S-O-N, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. Nimrod was not that man. Nimrod was one who rejected, who rebelled, who went his own way. Now we find that in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2 and 4, tells us this. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing but righteousness delivereth from death. The Lord will not suffer the soul of righteousness to famish, uh, to famish but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. He becometh poor that dealeth with the slack cane with the hand of... Oh, there's my, there's my alarm. I'm going to go for one more minute. How about that? <laughs> it's, yeah, hit snooze. Hit the snooze button. All right. What do we find? is that as they talk about this wicked, these wicked people, they're in Proverbs about pride. That God throws away these wicked folks and ultimately they cannot stand. Proverbs 16 tells us, of course, in a familiar passage, verse uh, 17, The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keepeth his way preserveth his soul. Pride goeth before destruction and the haughty spirit before fall. Better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Nimrod is going to go to the way of the proud. Matter of fact, he's going to be the example of what it means to be proud. He's going to be the example of what it means to go against God, to go against the Lord's work, the Lord's will, the Lord's people. Ultimately tonight, the reminder is there in that little section title, don't be a Nimrod. Do not seek to build your own kingdom. But rather do what Jesus has called us to do. And that is to seek His kingdom first. And that His kingdom is not of this world, but it is... It is of Himself. It is everlasting. It is eternal. It is ultimately a kingdom of light. It is ultimately a kingdom that one day will be established on this earth. That's the day that we long and look forward to. But until then, we must see the signs of the time and we must see this day and the age in which we live in that there are a whole lot of Nimrods around us today. And I'm not talking about Nimrods like, look, what a Nimrod. I'm talking about actual, serious, perverted, wicked people who seek nothing but power. We've got a whole lot of Nimrods that we voted in office. Amen? We've got Nimrods in all sorts of countries. We've got Nimrods everywhere. Sadly, we've got Nimrods behind pulpits who are building their own little kingdoms. They're just calling them churches. That's idolatry. It's, it's, being, uh, it's being wicked with what God has called someone to. It's being perverse with the church of God. We must be very careful in these days. We must see that even in the midst of all this wickedness, Yet God's hand is at work in His redemptive plan to redeem His people and ultimately one day He will crush every enemy and wicked one that came against Him. That's the hope of the believer. That's the assurance of the believer. 
And while it sounds harsh and severe, we have to remember two chapters ago, God killed everybody. The righteous rejoice when God moves His hand in judgment. And one day we will. I don't know what that looks like, and, and I think we ought to be very careful with celebrating too early, if you know what I mean. We should not celebrate. Why? Because the Lord says Himself that He does not celebrate or take joy in the death of the wicked. Neither should we. But rather, we must pray for this generation that we live in. We must pray for God to open up eyes. We must pray for repentance and faith. And it must begin in the household of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We want to thank you for this night. We're grateful for your word. Grateful that we could study and look into it. Lord, help us to, to dive deep into these things, to see what you'd have for us, Lord, so that we could see your hand of provision for your people and your hand that is able to crush your enemy, but as well uh, to redeem and purify your people. Help us tonight, Lord, to be strengthened by you, to be encouraged by you, to pray, to be a prayerful and a faithful people. Lord, that we would see that souls would be uh, born again, that we would see that our own eyes would be open to uh, the, the religious wickedness and idolatry that is around us. And Lord, that we would not fall to its prey, but rather uh, hold fast uh, by faith and, and sound doctrine. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this night. God, direct us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.